We have two different scripture readings this morning. Um, All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they tell us about Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter. And since we're in Matthew in our Sermon on the Mount series, I chose his account of the triumphal entry in Matthew 21. So we're going to read that first. This is God's holy and infallible word, Matthew 21, beginning at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. We read this in our Zechariah series in the fall. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. We know from other Gospels that it was palm branches. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And then Matthew 5, 10 through 12, our final beatitude, final of the eight beatitudes that introduce the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's God's word for us this morning. Matthew's telling of Palm Sunday, inspired by the Holy Spirit, culminates with a question the people ask. Did did you hear the question? I think only Matthew has this. Only Matthew records that they said this. They said, who is this? These beatitudes that we've been studying have been telling us the heart of Jesus in a very special way. And and so this final beatitude is going to help us answer the question of Palm Sunday. Who is he? Who is Jesus who we worship and adore? We see, first of all this morning, that he is the one who reveals a surprising ending. When you read the Gospels, of course, you find that Jesus is always saying and doing unexpected stuff. We see in Matthew that he's a different kind of king than the people were waiting for, and he's got a different kingdom than they expected. And of course, Jesus, Jesus isn't always what people today want or expect either. The Beatitudes have been showing us that in a dramatic way. Blessed are the meek, come on, 
Everybody knows you get to the top by asserting yourself with aggressiveness. Blessed are the merciful. Hey, we all know that can't work. If you show compassion, you're going to get trampled on in this world. That's not the way to blessing. That's not the way to success. Blessed are those who mourn. I mean, that's just weird. You know what the world says to people who embrace these qualities? Loser. That's what the world says. And yet, this is the life of the Christian. And that's what makes the Sermon on the Mount so hard to hear. If we truly take Jesus' words to heart, this is tough stuff. Does all of this that we've been reading together, does it all describe you? Does it describe me? It must. This is what belonging to Jesus means. We talk about believing in Jesus. We're going to celebrate Good Friday and Easter, Palm Sunday today. Well, the Beatitudes are where the rubber meets the road. This is what it's all about. Jesus reveals surprising stuff. And maybe most surprising of all is the last beatitude. Where is all of this going to lead? This living for Jesus that he talks about? Well, blessed are those who are persecuted. Great. Just what we wanted to hear. What an an inspiring message for the church to preach to everybody. We talked last week about being peacemakers. Well, it seems that despite our best efforts to live at peace with everyone, the Bible tells us that, it seems that despite our our best efforts to live at peace with everyone, it seems that not everyone will live at peace with us. The blessed life, the end result of living for Jesus, includes persecution. Unlike the other Beatitudes, there's a little commentary with this Beatitude, a couple extra verses telling us it means we're going to be insulted, persecuted, we're going to have all kinds of evil falsely set against us because of Jesus. This Beatitude, that there's a blessing with persecution, would have been a great comfort to believers who lived in the decades after Jesus ascended into heaven. They were certainly insulted like Jesus, who was mocked on the cross. They were persecuted. Emperor Nero's persecutions are probably the most well-known in history. All of the apostles were martyred for their faith, except John, whose life we're going to be looking at in the Gospels tonight with Dr. Berksma. John died in exile on an island. All kinds of false things, like Jesus says, were spoken against early Christians. Christians, you know, were accused of cannibalism in the Roman Empire because of the language of the Lord's Supper, take, eat, drink. They were accused of incest because Christians called their spouses a brother or sister in the Lord. They were accused of atheism, which back then was a bad thing. In our culture, there are atheists that celebrate it, but for the Romans, 
You didn't want to be an atheist. Christians were called atheists because they rejected all the Roman gods. They were accused more generally of hating all of humanity because they didn't go along with all the immoral practices of the society in their day. All distortions of the truth to hurt God's people. But surely this beatitude is outdated, right? This isn't now. That stuff isn't happening now. I mean, we're in a pluralistic age, and that means you can believe what you want. As long as we nicely go about our life and don't cause trouble, no one really gives us a hard time, do they? But you know, even if you and I aren't experiencing what the early Christians did, we're not being killed for our faith, we we have to think of the whole globe. You and I, we're, we're just a very small part of the worldwide church. North America is just a very small part of the worldwide church. Maybe you caught this in the news. On Monday, the U.S. House unanimously condemned genocide of Middle East Christians. Can you believe to think of, to make a unanimous decision in this highly partisan environment we live in? But they all agreed on that. And the State Department followed up with an official announcement on Thursday calling genocide what ISIS has done to the Yazidi people, the Shiite Muslims, and Middle East Christians. It's the first time since uh, 2004, Darfur, I think, that the U.S. has declared a genocide. This is a big deal. There's, there's a new book out called The Church and Religious Persecution I read about this week. It says 75% of all people today live in a country where persecution is a part of everyday life. Open Doors is a Christian nonprofit whose goal, whose mission is to help the persecuted church. And they report, and you can go to their website and, and check this out and a whole lot of other things. On average, every month in our world, 322 Christians are killed for their faith. On average, every month in our world, 214 Christian churches and properties are destroyed. On average, every month, there are 772 forms of violence against Christians, like beatings, abductions, rapes, arrests, forced marriages. So there are thousands upon thousands, there are millions of our brothers and sisters in Jesus for whom this verse is very very real. We hear about ISIS killings, but according to this book I mentioned, persecution includes anti-blasphemy and anti-apostasy laws in North Africa, human rights abuses in South Asia, government crackdowns in China that send congregations underground, faith-motivated mob violence in India. Four out of ten countries in the world, over three-quarters of the world population, have high levels of government restriction or social hostility toward the Christian faith. What this book says is just astounding that the North American church does not have a more vigorous and unified response to all this, especially since pretty much all North American denominations support outreach and missions in countries all around the world. So, This surprising verse is very relevant for us because of 
global persecution today that we must not close our eyes to. We must be aware. We must be in prayer for our brothers and sisters. We must encourage our government to speak out. And I believe, I don't know the process of speaking out on these things, but my impression is that whatever the State Department did this week, I think there were many who wished that they had spoken out much sooner than this. This verse is also relevant to us because Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. This is for all of us. Anyone who is serious about his or her faith will receive opposition. There is an inherent tension between the message and the life of Christians and the mindset and the way of the world. And this is always true. It always has been. In fact, uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, made suffering a mark of the true church. That's how he saw it. It's so pervasive. We should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases. We should be surprised if it doesn't. Luke's version of the Beatitudes has a woe that goes along with the blessing. Woe to you, disciples, when all men speak well of you. In the Bible and in history, universal popularity, you know who that was, that was a mark of? That was the mark of the false prophets. Persecution was always the mark of the true prophets. Jesus reveals this surprising reality to conclude the Beatitudes, knowing, of course, that he would face persecution himself. He rode that donkey into Jerusalem with the praise of the crowds around him, knowing that he would hear jeers and mockery and be tortured and die in just a few days. Jesus could have called down angels from heaven to stop it. But instead, he rode forward to face it. And that was the surprising kingdom way. The people in Jesus' day, and even in our own day today, might think, what kind of faith is this? What kind of religion is this? How could this possibly be? And Paul says it. This is a stumbling block to people. But the reality is that suffering was the path to win our salvation. And this becomes our way too. This is as much a description of every Christian disciple's experience as being pure in heart, seeking righteousness, being merciful, and all the rest. And, and so, who is Jesus this morning? He's the one who reveals this surprising ending to the Beatitudes and to his life on this earth. We see something else about Jesus this morning. Second, Jesus is the one whose way doesn't leave room for middle ground. The surprising kingdom way is inherently at odds with other ways. It's either going to draw people against Jesus or people will be drawn towards him. Did you notice that those are blessed who are persecuted 
for righteousness' sake specifically. Jesus isn't talking about people being hostile towards you because you brought trouble on yourself or because you've acted poorly toward people or because we're self-righteous or obnoxious on Facebook or something. This is about righteousness for Jesus' sake and on his account, not because of our own faults and shortcomings. Persecution is because people find this righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. They find it distasteful. It's because people have rejected the Jesus we're following and don't want to follow his way, which, which raises the question, what is righteousness? What's the way of righteousness? Well, righteousness starts with Jesus' perfect righteousness given to us because we need to be made right with God because of our sin. When we belong to Jesus, when we believe in Jesus, we become right with God because of Jesus' finished work. His righteousness changes our hearts, and then it shines out of us. We live like Jesus. John Calvin helps us see what that looks like. He says, suffering for righteousness' sake. It might not be exactly what you think. He says, it means being concerned For justice and equity, it means that we oppose evil causes, that we're defending the good to the best of our ability. In fact, justice could be a word to use in place of righteousness here. Justice. Righteousness is being right with God and then wanting things to be right in this world. We want his kingdom to come. We want his way to be the way that's followed and promoted on earth. And we want that, and we work towards that as Jesus' followers. And as we do, we're going to experience opposition. There's a pastor that gives some examples that I want to share a few of those and then give some of my own. If you live simply and happily, you're going to show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly With your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you pursue self-control in your life, your life will indict overeating, overdrinking, overconsumption of the things of this world. If you're punctual and if you're thorough in your dealings, you're going to lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you're going to throw callousness into sharp relief. If, If you're earnest, you will make what is flippant and sarcastic look sad and shallow instead of clever like we think it is sometimes. If you're spiritually minded, you're going to expose the worldly mindedness of those around you. If you care about the least of these, you will reveal the selfishness of those who look after themselves alone. If you value all life, You're going to show the evil of a culture that says some life is worth protecting and other life can be discarded. When you love even your enemies, you're going to be mocked as weak by those who promote a culture of retribution. If you stick up for people who are different from you, you will be jeered by those who say, hey, we got to stick together. We got to look after our own. 
Being righteous isn't being holier than thou. It's simply following Jesus. And when people are doing that, there will be results inevitably. One pastor says there will either be persecution as who we are clashes with others or people will respond to Jesus and his way by turning to him, being converted, entering the kingdom. People will come to the conclusion by God's grace that this world has nothing to offer, that the solution to life's troubles aren't in us and who we are, but the answer is in Jesus. And so conversion or persecution are really ultimately the only two responses to righteousness. Jesus doesn't leave room for middle ground. So the question comes then, what if we don't see around us in our lives persecution or conversion in response to our life? What does that say about us and our righteousness or lack thereof? One pastor says this, something to consider if we're not seeing those two things, maybe our light is under a bushel as Christians. We have to consider that our values maybe are being watered down by the world around us. Consider that we're not shining the light. Perhaps there's something missing in our faithfulness to God if I'm not facing persecution or if I'm not seeing people come to Jesus around me. Another option to consider is this, if we don't see it. People are in process of moving toward one of those poles or the other, but just aren't there yet. Either outright opposing Christ or becoming a Christian. Those things don't happen immediately or dramatically all around us all the time. And so, we want to be sure that we're really, truly living the Christian life. But the fault isn't necessarily in us if we don't see fruit or we don't see opposition to our Christian living. It could be that someone is in the process of coming to Jesus who is near you and near your life, and and your life is helping them move in that direction. The seed could be growing in their life and just ready to pop up from the dirt so that they're born again. That could be happening with the people that you interact with in your life who see your life. Or the storm could be ready to break near us too. People who are not moving toward Jesus are moving away from him. There is no middle ground. Around the globe, just as the church is growing tremendously in places, the hostility against Christians is all around the globe too. And we should expect it here too. Because if we are seeking righteousness, if we want people to be made right with God, and if we want things to be right in our world. Jesus says there will be opposition. Finally, this morning, what else do we see about Jesus? We see finally that he's the one whose victory wins a blessedness 
that's going to make it all worth it in the end. The promise is that it's going to turn out pretty well after all. The reason it can turn out well for us and will is because of as big as a surprise it was that Palm Sunday is going to turn to Good Friday. There's a bigger surprise. Good Friday will turn to Easter. As big a surprise it was that those crowds that shouted crucify him, that there would be the cross afterwards. Three days later, Jesus would come to life, burst forth from the tomb, winning victory over sin and death and hell. We're blessed, and we can have the blessed life because of the finished work of Jesus. And so, according to Jesus, we're called to rejoice and be glad in response to persecution. The word is extreme joy. Joy that you can see on the outside. Tears of joy, skipping for joy, jumping up and down for joy. The type of joy and, that we express in Christian Reformed worship every Sunday. That was a joke. We see this joy in Acts 5, 40-41. The Jewish authorities arrested the apostles, had them flogged, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then release them. So after all that, what did they do? They went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. Now, you know what a flogging was? 39 lashes. A flogging was so severe and painful that it often it could result in death. I don't know about often, but it did sometimes. So they had this type of joy, Jesus is saying, jumping up and down joy, tears of joy, while their backs were raw and bleeding and probably every step was excruciating. How in the world, we, we can't even comprehend how they could have that level of joy after that. But it's because of what Jesus says here. He says, you have this joy, one, because in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. So that means if we experience opposition from the world, that is great assurance that we are on the right track. We're in line with men and women of faith throughout all of time. Persecution is a badge of honor. It's a certificate of Christian authenticity. We can also rejoice and be glad because Jesus says, great is our reward in heaven. We might lose everything on this earth, even our life, but we'll inherit everything in heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the promise here. It's the same promise as the first beatitude. It covers all the beatitudes. Though the surprise of persecution might be the most unexpected result of us belonging to Jesus, it's certainly in line with all kinds of things in the Christian life that are upside down from what we might want from what we might expect about the kingdom of heaven.
But because of Jesus' victory, there will be for us a final and ultimate surprise that's going to make it all worth it. The Bible says Jesus will return on the clouds one day soon. God will make all things right. And when Jesus returns, because of God's grace, as one pastor puts it, instead of human insults, we'll receive divine approval. And that's the only approval you need. Instead of human rejection, we'll receive divine acceptance. Instead of human harassment, it will be divine favor. Instead of earthly punishment, eternal bliss. When we live out the Beatitudes, the promises that we'll enjoy, all of these promised blessings. We read these eight Beatitudes together now, and they're so tough. Who could match up? We fall short. But we don't have to be afraid if we don't follow the ways of the kingdom perfectly. Because that's exactly why Jesus came on Palm Sunday and beyond to the cross and to the grave and then rose up to life. That's why we remember and celebrate all of these events in a very special way today in worship this coming Good Friday, Easter. Jesus came to walk the kingdom road, the life of blessing perfectly, put our sins to death, and he came to give us forgiveness in life. All you need to do is say yes to the king, and he will accept you. He will set you on the righteous path of blessing all the way to your eternal reward one day. May you and I, all of us, with the Spirit's help, live for Jesus more and more every day, come what may, and so inherit the kingdom that he came to bring and establish for all his people. Amen.